What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Last spring, I wrote a letter to Kelly Wilson's mom, Kathy. The 30th anniversary of Kelly's disappearance from Gilmer, Texas, had just passed that January. I introduced myself and asked if we could meet. A few weeks later, my phone rang. An anonymous call. When I picked up, I instantly recognized Kathy's voice. She has a southern accent. It's kind of twangy. She was polite, but she didn't have much to say. To my disappointment, Kathy declined to meet for an interview. She said she had good reason not to talk. There were new developments in the search for her daughter, Kelly. Kathy didn't want to do anything to compromise the case. I had also written a letter to Kelly's dad, Robbie. Unlike his ex-wife, Robbie was happy to meet. Hey, Mr. Wilson. Hello, yes. Hey, I'm Wes Ferguson. Hello, Wes. Come on in. Yes, sir. Very nice to meet you. Oh, good to meet you. Robbie looked really good for 70 years old. He spent decades working in management at paper mills. Retired now, he wears a tidy gray beard and stays fit on the golf course. And he lives in a lake house in Natchitoches, the small town in Louisiana, where Kelly grew up before she moved to East Texas as a teenager. It's a beautiful home you have. You brought yeah. from Texas. Right. You know, it, it uh, was clear most of the way, and then past 20 minutes really? or so, started coming down. Absolutely. All right. Wow, right on the water. The view from the lake through Robbie's back window was stunning. Sheets of rain swept across the water, rippling the surface. We sat down in the living room. Although Robbie's second wife, Waverlyn, died in 2020, you could still feel a woman's presence in all the furniture and home decor. I explained to Robbie why I was so interested in Kelly's case, that I was 12 years old when she vanished, that my first newspaper editor had given me the idea that maybe I could help find Kelly. I had always, you know, wanted to come back to, to the story because, you know, a lot of it just didn't really make add yeah, up to Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a long, sordid, twisted foolishness went on with the story that probably shouldn't have. It's a nice cold case now. There's a lot of there's a lot of questions. There's more questions than answers to this thing, for sure. I'm I'm not a, a father yet, um, and I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah, it's it's not it's not easy, and you don't you know I don't know how you deal with it other than the fact that you just wake up every day and you live. And, you know, you get to the day and you wake up the next day and you do it again. You know, and it 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 gets easier, but it never goes away. I asked Robbie to tell me what he remembered about Kelly when she still lived with him in Louisiana. Did she have um, hobbies, pastimes? You know, what can you just tell me more about her no, personality? Of course, she. I mean, she had school activities. You know, I think she was. She might have been in the what do you call it? She not the cheerleaders, but the, the pep squad and all that kind of thing in school. Uh, had pretty typical young lady type activities. She kind of liked math a little bit, you know, some, some of the sciences. She was smart enough, she could have done whatever she wanted. But Kelly was also headstrong. 
We got into that in the first episode, how Kelly bucked against the rules of Robbie's house. He was a single dad doing his best, and he says his daughter was more than a handful. I grew up with two brothers. I didn't have any idea what to do with a teenage daughter, especially one that was, you know, pretty attractive, very outgoing. I mean, she she was a handful. From the time she was, and she, Kelly matured way, way early. It's almost unfair. She, I mean, she matured from like she was 11 and a half years old. And until she turned 15 or 16, she didn't act like she had a brain in her head. And I guess the hormones were just raging, you know, coupled with the fact that her parents split up and her mother was steadily just agitating the situation. To get at me, frankly. Her mother and I both grew up in a little town called Plain Dealing. Uh, I don't know if you've contacted her mother or not. I talked to her yesterday. I, I don't even know where she, I guess she's still in Plain Dealing, I don't know. Plain Dealing is a tiny town in northwestern Louisiana. Just out of curiosity, was she going well, to talk to you? Uh, she said no. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Robbie and Kelly's mom, Kathy, are estranged. They haven't spoken since 1994. Part of that is due to their ugly divorce and custody battle for Kelly and her little brother, Kyle. But also, Robbie has leveled serious accusations against Kathy, wondering if she knows more about her daughter's disappearance than she's letting on. What do you think is the most plausible thing that happened? <laughs> I, you know, I still go back to the, to the family. I mean, if you, look at, if you look at these kind of things statistically, that's where it almost always is now. What happened and how it happened, I couldn't. I mean, you can, you can, you, you let your imagination run wild. Remember, Kelly's stepdad, Robert Carlson, was the first person to find her 85 Dodge Charger beside the video store on the morning after she vanished. According to the first news reports about Kelly's case, Robert told police he went out looking for Kelly at 5 a.m. Later, he would say he actually went searching two hours earlier at three in the morning. Either way, the car was unlocked when he found it, a tire was slashed, and Kelly's purse was inside the vehicle. First of all, you rely on the fact that her purse was in the car strictly on what he says, you know, her stepdad says, right? You really don't know, other than what he's telling you. Is that true or not true? Just depends on whether or not he has any reason to lie. Why was he even out looking for it at 3 a.m. on this particular night and not any of the others? She, I mean, obviously had a history of, you know, being out and partying. And don't forget, Kelly's tire had also been slashed outside the video store just two nights before she disappeared. To get a ride home that time, on Friday, I've been told that Kelly called her stepdad to come pick her up. I have also heard that Kelly simply drove home on the flat tire. On Sunday night, when Kelly vanished, practically every news report has repeated the detail that store manager Joe Henry was the last person to see her. But I found one report just one that told a different story. It claimed the skateboarders who were on the town square that night watched Kelly go back inside the video store after her tire was slashed. The skaters supposedly watched Kelly make a phone call. Who did Kelly call? Her stepdad or someone else? From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Devil Town. This is Chapter 8, Older Men. Over the years, Robbie Wilson has often questioned whether his ex-wife, Kathy Carlson, 
had anything to do with Kelly's disappearance. One of Robbie's theories that he shared with law enforcement back in the 90s is that somehow Kelly found out her brother Kyle's blood type proved that he was not actually Robbie's son. Here's a direct quote from an investigator's report, which is publicly available from the attorney general's office. Kelly was going to tell this to Robbie, and this may have been a motive if Kathy Carlson had a hand in Kelly's demise. This seems really far-fetched to me. Robert and Kathy Carlson have always adamantly denied involvement in Kelly's disappearance. And remember, Kelly's purse was in the car. If her stepdad had given her a ride home, she wouldn't have left her purse behind. Then again, we only have the stepdad's word about the purse. You know, the issue with the purse, you know, being in the car or wasn't in the car, who knows? Another wrinkle in the case involves the key to Kelly's Dodge Charger. When Kelly's stepdad, Robert, discovered her car beside the video store early Monday morning, that key was nowhere to be found. Just days after Kelly's disappearance, the same key mysteriously appeared in their yard. Like someone who knew where Kelly lived, drove by, tossed the key out the window, and drove away. This rumor has been swirling around Gilmer for decades, and I've been able to confirm it. This is what Kelly's mom and stepdad say happened. Kelly's dad, on the other hand, Robbie, questions whether they're telling the truth. He wonders if Kelly got a ride home that night, just like she did two nights earlier. Something happened, and Kelly died. Robbie's theory is that her mom and stepdad made up the story of finding her purse in the unlocked car and the key in the yard to cover up something else, something worse. Again, this is all conjecture on Robbie's part. Robbie also claims that Kathy was already talking about funeral arrangements on the first morning Kelly didn't come home. Kelly had barely been missing at that point. No one knew anything. Robbie says it didn't sit well with him. Kathy's reaction to her missing daughter left other people in Gilmer scratching their heads as well. I hate to say this, but anyway, her mom came into the picture a lot of times. They asked me a lot about her mom. That was Joe Henry, who worked with Kelly and was the last person to talk to her at the video store. Here's local news reporter Philip Williams. The, the one thing about her mother that seemed strange to me was Kathy. You would think the average mother of a teenage girl who very likely has been murdered would be boo-hoo, boo-hoo. When I would talk to Kathy Carlson, her mindset seemed to be anger that the cops hadn't gotten anything done. I never saw her show any grief. Now, different people handled grief differently. But, you know, it just seemed strange to me the times that I talked to her, and it was a number of times, that I never saw her shed a tear, choke up or anything like that, and that seemed odd. The detective leading the search for Kelly, Sergeant James York Brown, said Kathy even tried to shut down his investigation. Of course, when her mother came in and wanted Kelly's clothes, that's when it really sent up red flags. Did she say why she wanted the case closed? She was tired of it all. I said, that's not a good reason. And I said, that won't happen until we find her and bring her home. It was strange. But like Philip Williams pointed out, everyone handles grief in their own way. Beyond these idle suspicions, I have not found a lick of evidence linking Kathy to the crime. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? 
Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Let's get back to Robbie's house in Louisiana. He and I had been talking for about half an hour when he offered to play a taping of an old news special about Kelly's case. I was carrying my stuff into Robbie's bedroom, where his TV is, when he brought up Kathy again. Hey, let's go in here to speak to you. Kathy, she declined to speak with you, huh? Well, she said that she, uh... Oh, big old TV. She said that there's she has engaged with some new investigator and didn't want to... Compromise, Compromise it, right. I'm gonna call BS on that. <laughs> Talk to Kathy, and she declined it. And you're yeah. the first person that I've actually met yeah. with. I, uh, it doesn't surprise me she didn't want to talk to you. I can't answer, you know. I, well, then. I can't answer, I can't tell you other than, you know, I, I'm, like I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call BS on that. She's got somebody investigating. After my interview with Robbie ended, and I talked to a few more people, I wanted to let Kathy know that he and others were tossing around all these allegations against her. If nothing else, Kathy should have a chance to defend herself. I couldn't find a phone number, so I wrote another letter. Three days later, I got a call from a number I didn't recognize. Hello, Wes. This is Amanda Gamble. I'm the private investigator that is uh, investigating Kelly Wilson's case. Miss um, Kathy had received another letter from you. If you could give me a call back, I would sure appreciate it. Thank you. Huh. So there really was a private investigator. Someone named Amanda Gamble. I called her back. I just wanted to talk to you um, briefly about Kelly's case. I know more than likely, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that the narrative that you're going to go with is what's been published at this point, correct? Uh, well, no, ma'am. I'm I'm trying to interview everyone I can to to create a new narrative that's as complete and, and accurate as possible. What I can tell you is that we are um, very deep into the investigation of this case uh, to the point to where shortly we'll be turning everything over to the FBI. We've had to reinvestigate the case um, as if it's never been investigated. Um, and it it could be a huge detriment uh, to the case at this point if we give any information not already published and out in public record. We have found new evidence. Um, and it has taken us in a completely different direction. 
And so um, we would really like to thoroughly uh, investigate this case for um, justice for Kelly and to hopefully locate her body. And I feel that if we um, if we release any information at this time, that's going to jeopardize that. Okay. Well, I completely understand that, and would not want to want want would not want to jeopardize that either. Um, what's your? Do you have any any timeline for when you think you'll be ready to to give that to the DA's office? We're we're not going to the DA's office. Uh, we're going to go straight to the oh, FBI. FBI with it. So um, I would say probably um, three to six months at the at the most, honestly. And and I'll tell you this: um, the the <laughs> the truth is going to be stranger than the fiction. What what's been printed at this point is just fiction. You know, I've I've talked to Miss Kathy and and you know. She's just been through a lot um, as far as media goes. Um, they kind of put her through the ringer for, you know, 30 years ago. <clears throat> More than anything, it was, you know, hugely publicized, Kelly's case was, but it just wasn't ever investigated. And, and you know, 30 years later, she still doesn't have her daughter to lay to rest. And that's our main objective is to get justice and find Kelly. We're in a very pivotal point of the investigation right now. Um, the tides have turned. Anything that we say at this point that is released in any way, shape, fashion, or form could jeopardize the case. And, and I just don't want that to happen. Understood. Completely. And I'll tell you now, the one thing with Miss Kathy is, is, you know, her trust and, and her, you know, she, she has lost a lot of faith in a lot of people and a lot of trust in a lot of people. And, you know, building that rapport with her is what is most important because she is a very, very gentle and good-hearted lady and and a, and a, a mother that can't grieve, that has mourned but cannot grieve. Like I said, we have gathered new evidence and there are things that um, did come up 30 years ago that they never, ever um, released that they never further investigated. Uh, they swept it completely under the rug and they went with their narrative. That narrative, you, you can see where that went. It went absolutely nowhere and was thrown out of court. You know, all of the satanic panic was just a smokescreen. That's all that was. I'm, I'm just letting you know the truth is stranger than the fiction. But I think you will, um, you know, if you enjoy telling the truth and you enjoy getting the truth out there, I think that you will um, really appreciate this story. But at this point, I'm still completely covertly investigating it. And if we let anything out in any ways, that's going to blow my cover. And that could also hurt and harm people. I mean, it, it, it really could. Um, it could put <clears throat> people's lives in danger, and we don't want that. We don't want that at all. I found out from Amanda that she and I are basically the same age. She grew up in a little town near Gilmer and, like me, had always wondered what happened to Kelly. So, when Amanda got her private investigator's license, she offered to work for Kathy pro bono. Amanda had only been on the case three months, 
and she'd already found so much. I'm kind of like a freight train, is, is the way I would describe myself. Once I get started on something, and once I start finding leads, and once I start finding truth, I barrel through, and I don't stop. I'm trying to not leave a stone unturned. And if you'll just kind of hang on with us and, and hold out, I could let you know, hey, this is fixing to happen, and be there. And your yes. story would be huge. Amanda told me she'd filed a request for the case files from the attorney general's office. I let her know I already had a copy of the AG's files at a cost of $720. My access to the files seemed to pique Amanda's interest. This job was pro bono, after all. I'm also in the process of getting stuff from the FBI. Me too. We're on the same page here, Wes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Do you have your private investigator's license? No, I don't. I'm, a, I'm just a journalist. I'm trying to uh, figure out what to do here with. Let me... Mm. I'm almost tempted, and I'll be quite honest with you to work with you on this. But nothing can be released until it's time to take it to the FBI. I could agree to that. You and I can get together as soon as possible. We'll sit down together. I'll show you everything that I have. And we can go from there. You can do some interviews. Uh, We can do some together. I can do some. But we share what we've got. And I think we would make a a bigger headway quicker. I will tell you, uh, my main suspect is without a doubt. Sorry. I promised Amanda I wouldn't give this away just yet. From here on out, I have to be pretty careful about what I disclose. Not to be overly dramatic about it. All in due time, right? Ever since that first phone call, Amanda and I have been talking through everyone who might be a suspect in Kelly's disappearance. What about Joe Henry, the video store manager? Sure, Joe was the last person to see Kelly on the night she vanished, but he had an alibi. He'd gone to the grocery store and talked to a friend on the phone after getting off work. Plus, Joe just seems like a nice guy to me. Philip Williams, the local news reporter, is always quick to vouch for Joe. A month after my first trip to Gilmer, I went to see Philip again. I found him sitting in an old recliner near the front door of his furniture store, right off the town square. Did you talk to Joe Henry up here at that burger place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I popped in the same day I talked to you. Of course, Joe and I had known each other a long time when all this happened. He's one of my best friends. And poor guy talking about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Naturally, he looked like a suspect because he walked out with her that night. Well, ain't no way in hell Joe Henry would kill anybody unless it was self-defense. I mean, he's just, you know, never has been a violent person. He has been squeamish about talking about it. Um, 
and, and, and one thing you're probably going to discover, and I won't explain this to you in case you do, if you don't already know, Joe has a conviction for child pornography um, that happened 18 years ago or so. Now, what happened was he had a friend who was into it heavy. Joe had told him to get rid of it, and he's certainly no pedophile. He was downloading zip zip files and news groups for this guy who is now dead. They came and got Joe's computer one day and found 10 images on there. And Joe told me that he was downloading stuff for this Tony and, and couldn't see what he was downloading. Well, it turned out it was child pornography and they traced it to his computer. So he pled no contest. Philip told me that Joe's lawyer advised him to accept a plea deal, even though he was innocent, to avoid the risk of a long prison sentence. On January 5th, 2005, by sheer coincidence, 13 years to the day since Kelly was last seen, Joe pleaded no contest to possession of child pornography, a third-degree felony. He was given five years probation. Satisfactorily completed his probation with no sweat. Of course, his picture was on TV and everything. It's a wonder it didn't ruin his business. But in any event, I've never believed he was guilty. And I mean, talk to people like me, you've known him a long time, they'll tell you, there ain't no way in hell Joe Henry's a child molester pedophile. But I figured you might uncover this in the course of your research. And I wanted you to know what the true story as far as I believe it to be. I know Philip wants to believe the best of his friend, but just to be sure, I got my hands on his case file. One of the documents was an affidavit the cops used to secure the search warrant of Joe's house and his burger place. According to the affidavit, Joe's problems started when another guy from Gilmer named Tony Elardo got busted with 5,000 images of child porn. He had it on computers, floppy disks, compact disks, and removable hard drives. When Elardo was arrested, he told the police he got most of the illegal porn from Joe. One of the hard drives even had Joe's written on it in black marker. If that wasn't bad enough, the FBI had also seized the database of a Fort Worth company that offered memberships for child porn websites. According to the affidavit, Joe Henry's name and personal information were right there in the database. The police were able to prove that Joe had even used his own credit cards to purchase the memberships. It's horrifying. And yet, none of that means Joe had a hand in Kelly's disappearance. I had no idea about any of this when I first met Joe at his burger joint, but it turns out Joe had a reputation for inappropriate behavior with the high school girls who worked with him at the video store. Then I thought Joe was the creepiest person on the face of the planet. This is Kelly's high school friend, Lee Taylor. He just was a creeper. He gave us all the, you know, he just was always lurking around, always lurking around. My mom grew up with Joe and I remember her being uneasy about us, all of us girls hanging out up there. All my friends were working at the movie store and I wanted to work at the movie store with all my friends. <laughs> and, uh, she would not let me. My mother would not. She was like, I don't want you around him. Joe has even admitted that he once propositioned Kelly. He was in his mid-30s 
and she was 17. Although Joe has always maintained that he offered her $1,000 for sex as a joke. I want to say like $1,000 to have sex with him or something. You know, and in, in 1991, $1,000 was a lot of money. And, you know, and I remember we would tell her, you need to watch out for him. He is a total fucking creepster. Like, gross, yuck. And she's like, oh, I know, he's harmless. Do you remember her saying one time, like, ugh, he's tried to get me to be with him or something like that. Joe has also admitted that he pulled down Kelly's sweatpants another time when he was trying to give her a wedgie. To be honest, this is shocking to me, but I remember how a lot of older men acted around teenage girls when I was younger. Other grown-ups just kind of turned a blind eye to these men. Bosses, teachers, church leaders. It was innocent flirting, till it wasn't. Here's Kelly's other friend, Michelle, the one who lived with Kelly's family after she had a baby during their junior year. So many things were normalized. Like I remember in high school, there were kids sleeping with coaches. I didn't get into that, but a lot of girls did. So I just feel like there was something going on in the community that we didn't know about. And it was making it too acceptable. And when you're that age, when you're 15 or six, I have three daughters. When you're that age, you can be taken advantage of so easily and things can be normalized so quickly that you feel like those type of things are okay when they're not and you don't realize you're being victimized. That's what's very frustrating to me because I feel like that was going on. It was different and you didn't have social media. People weren't blasted. And I feel like a lot of these older people were protected. Like they just didn't believe young girls very much, you know? And that's why it's really hard for young girls to come forward because somebody says, well, they were intoxicated, so they didn't know what they were doing. Um, so they agreed to it. They shouldn't have been wearing a skirt that sh short. They asked for it. There's so many things that if a young girl comes forward, she even starts to have her own friends or, you know, people at school saying, well, she's a, she's a slut anyway. You know, she's always sleeping around. And so it makes it very hard for a young female to ever come forward because I start being criticized. And I don't care how big of a slut you are, you don't deserve to be taken advantage of. You don't deserve to be raped. During their junior year, when Michelle was still living with Kelly's family, there was a night that Kelly didn't come home. Miss Kathy was panicking and had me calling everybody. But I was making phone calls and calling people I knew to call, which was younger people. Have you seen Kelly? Is Kelly with you? Have you seen her? And I was doing all of those things and um, pacing, you know, rather in the living room or in the kitchen. It was dark outside and um, I, I saw car lights. And when I saw car lights, uh, I got outside, but by the time I got outside and got down the steps, they were getting back in the car pulling off. So I did, I, my focus was on Kelly, not on the car, because I could tell she needed assistance. So I hollered for Miss Kathy and I ran out there to get her. So, and I know it was somebody older dropping her off. She was dressed in a long black gown and that long blonde hair was tousled up on her head. And I mean, she looked 30 and they dropped her off, so, and she wasn't coherent. They propped her up against the fence, but you've probably seen her dealt with the intoxicated person, whether it's alcohol or drug use, whatever it is. She wasn't like asleep, passed out, but just wasn't with it. You know what I mean? 
she told me the next day that she couldn't remember anything and I just I didn't believe her but I didn't press her either I mean she had done so much for me if she'd made a mistake I just really didn't want to hold her feet to the fire but I do wish now I'd ask more questions I was too young to to know to to ask more questions and it, it drives me nuts because I feel like I could have found out a lot more what was going on with her because I had no idea what she had stepped off into. Michelle is being hard on herself. Afterward, she tried to find out who the car belonged to. It was a black luxury car. I asked around at school, does anybody know whose car this is? Michelle doesn't want to reveal anything more about the car, at least not yet. Just to be clear, since we mentioned him a minute ago, Joe Henry did not have a black luxury car. He drove a pickup truck. This was someone else. And there was this one dude, Clint, who was pushing 30 when he met Kelly during her junior year. At the time, Kelly had an after-school job at a buffet restaurant. How did, how did you meet Kelly? Through my youngest sister, they worked together at the Golden Crowl there in Gilmer. I was working out of town pipelining and stuff. I'd come in on the weekends occasionally. And uh, we had a little old bonfire party one night at my mom and dad's house. She was a young, pretty, blonde-headed girl. We probably didn't, you know, I don't even want to call it dating because, I mean, I was gone all the time. Um, it probably wasn't several times that I seen her. Where would y'all go? Hell, I don't remember us going anywhere. Um, <laughs> she would come out to the house. I'd already drove 14 hours to come home. And usually it was just, you know, uh, drink alcohol and, and uh, do what folks do. You know, it's kind of a deal. I made good money. I could come in from a job and give her a $100 bill, send her to the mall. She was a happy girl. Six times in three months is all I ever seen her. And I hadn't seen her in probably nine months when she disappeared. Um, hell, I'd already got remarried. She was a sweet girl. Um, but like I say, you know, I was older than her and and that was probably just a, a fling deal for her or something other just because, you know, I had $100 bills in my pocket or something. Did she, could you tell, did she kind of expect that or was it just, I no, mean? No, no. Um, no, she didn't ask me for money at all. Um, I would just say, hey, Here's a hundred, go shopping. Because I had plenty. The way Clint puts it, Kelly was casual fun on the rare occasions he was back in town from work. But her friend Michelle remembers Kelly taking their relationship pretty seriously. She was dating him when I moved in with her. And when my parents found out that she was dating him, they talked to Miss Kathy and Miss Kathy made her break up with him. She spent two days in that bedroom bawling and squalling over that. Whatever Kelly was doing was normalized. I don't feel like she thought she was being taken advantage of. I think what she was doing, she felt like it it was okay. Like Clint said, he was already married by the time Kelly went missing. The night Kelly disappeared, Clint and his wife were competing in an all-night bingo tournament at their church. It's pretty clear he had nothing to do with Kelly's disappearance. The other day, I tried to stop by Joe's place. There was a note on the window. His burger joint was closed due to a health issue. 
If he was really sick, I didn't want to bother him, but I also needed to ask him some difficult questions. So I looked up Joe's home address and knocked on his door. Hey, Wes, come in. Yes, sir. Man, I've been sick. I heard that. What's wrong? I've got a thing called achalasia, and it's, uh, man, it just got me down. Yeah. Yeah, come on, Mr. around. Okay. I almost didn't recognize Joe. He was in a bathrobe, skin and bones. It had been a few months since I saw him last, but he looked like he'd aged 20 years. You think you're going to be on the mend? Are you feeling any better at all? Well, I'm feeling better. I lost. I went down from 210 to 149. Well, I can tell you're very yeah. slim now. And I've lost all my strength, all my muscle mass. I was eating supper one night and the food wouldn't go down. Mm-hmm. It hung right here. And um, then I started throwing up for two months. It took his doctors a long time to figure out what was wrong. Eventually, they gave Joe some Botox injections in his stomach. Within about three hours, I was starting to get appetite back. Hmm. And I'm, on, I'm eating pretty good now, but I, I just have lost all my strength. And I don't even know if I'm going to be able to go back to work. So I told everyone that um, I haven't made a decision on that yet. But if I don't get back to where I need to be, then there's no way I can work. Joe says he will probably wait till next year to see if he is well enough to reopen the burger joint. If not, he'll probably have to sell it and retire. My customers say that if I'm not there, or if I'm not cooking them, it's not my kind of hamburger. Of course, I hadn't come to Joe's house to ask him about hamburgers. This a difficult question, but the thousand dollars. Oh, yes. That was totally out of context. That was just some horseplay that was not, definitely not serious. No. Just, you know, just doing things, saying things you shouldn't. Absolutely not. But yeah, they blew that all out of, out of whack. But that was horseplay that, and just saying things that uh, you shouldn't do. Yeah. But no, that was, that was certainly not done, but taken out of context as, as to what it was, what was said. Joe said he'd earned $1,000 from his side hustle repairing VCRs. Kelly was taking the money out of the cash drawer when Joe made the joke. He thinks a customer overheard him. It is just junk. Very embarrassing after that came out, but it was, it was, I assure you, it was just, just junk talk. Um, something else was brought up that was... I think it was like pulling, pulling out yeah, his Yes, that's right. That, well, it was... What's the word? Uh, what's, what, what do they call when you pull your pants up? A wedgie? Wedgie. Well, again, that was, you know, one of those things. And she jumped, and they came down rather than go up. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, you know. And that was taken out kind of totally wrong. Should have been doing that kind of stuff, just horse playing. But that was what that was about. I pressed Joe on a few other things. If he knew about Kelly seeing older men, maybe with money changing hands, if he'd heard where her body might be buried. A few other rumors I'd heard around town. Joe didn't seem to know anything more than what he'd already told me. After a while, I got up to leave. Joe gave me a plastic grocery bag so I could gather some pears from the tree in his front yard. Always come by anytime you want to. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm always here now. <laughs> yeah, well, keep feeling better. Keep eating. Well, I'm going to keep eating. Eat that ice cream. I'm going to eat all the ice cream I can handle. <laughs>
As I've mentioned before, police eliminated Joe as a suspect a long time ago. There are other leads to follow, people to interview. One interesting thing that Amanda, the private investigator, told me involves Kelly's friend group. They were teenage girls when Kelly disappeared in 1992. Now they're moms, some with teenagers of their own. Earlier this year, around the 30th anniversary of Kelly's disappearance, Kelly's friends got back together to talk, trade notes. What do you remember? What did you tell police that they ignored? And all of us girls talked about it, but none of us were really involved in the search. They didn't involve us. They didn't want involvement from um, her friends. And we were young and weren't aggressive enough to say, hey, what's going on? We were really depending on the adults in the community to do what needed to be done. For whatever reason, the adults weren't that interested in what the girls knew. On top of that, back then, Michelle had another reason to keep her distance from the case. A warning from her own mom and stepdad. Yeah, one of the things that was very um, alarming to me is that You know, my parents were very involved in a different world, and they sat me and my best friend down after she was gone, and we had gone through all the questions and did everything we were supposed to do. They sat us down and said, now that you've, you know, gone through all this, don't talk to anybody else. Don't talk to investigators. Don't talk to the media. I think they were more concerned with the media. They said, you really need to stay quiet and you need to stay out of everything because This has nothing to do with the teenagers they're looking at. It has to do with higher-ups in the community. And my stepdad put the fear of God in us. He said, your life will be in grave danger if you get too involved in this case. We get into that next time on Devil Town. I'm just going to say it. There was a lot of sexual payments made to Kelly. We are pretty confident that she was pregnant. We're looking at <clears throat> we're looking at some bad people. I mean, without a doubt. And if we're not careful, we could have lives in danger. Devil Town is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Audio engineering and editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score is by Robert Ellis. Recording by Austin Sisler at Eastside Studios. If you like the show, leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.